I knew it was bad. And there was some really bad stuff, but I, I never thought that that would be the choice that he would make. And in hindsight, I don't know. I don't like I don't like to wish because I think everything happens for a reason. And I really respect the choice that he made. But, you know, I shout at him in my head on a regular basis that, you know, we could have worked it out and we would have found a way. It's Hopefully. a great platform. Yeah, thank <laughs> it's you. It's a great platform. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's really important. A representation sometimes gets taken out of context for what it truly means to people. So to actually have a space where you can see people who are representation of you, it's like a mirror image, that is actually more powerful, especially to us, because it's not something that we actually regularly see in the mainstream. Like you gave your point of view from like the statistic from hospitality, but actually when you think about it from like retail or marketing and advertising, like I'm in now or finance, like I've been in before fashion, like it's the same story wherever you go. We're just mm. looking at a different sliding scale, but the reality is much of what you talk about will either be loud and in your face and overt, or it will be more insidious and kind of lulls you into that false sense of security that actually we are welcoming places that were actually really never designed designed for us and that are places where people who don't understand who we are, our culture, what we bring and our skill set, um, they go out of their way to minimize it and try and destroy it instead of embracing it and championing it like we want to. So no, mm. I, I think this is a great platform. Yeah, yeah. The representation is absolutely key. Absolutely. Mm. I didn't believe so when I was growing up, there were, I didn't I didn't have one, a clear vision of what I wanted to do, really, mm. until I was about 17, 18. But, you know, you go to school and then you, you do your science yeah. and thought I wanted to be a doctor. I made my parents wanted me to be a doctor. Ah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, and then I've done some work experience with a GP. You know, yeah. Got my auntie works in a GP. And I yeah. thought, oh, yeah, this isn't for me. No. It's not for me. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. It was only when I read uh, Richard Branson's autobiography and I realised, oh, okay, entrepreneurship, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. But then I think that was good for me yeah. because when I'm reading it, I can see aspects of his personality in myself. Yeah. And then that's the power of role modelling. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. you know, ethnic, whatever, he's a, he's a white man from yeah. the countryside where he grew up and whatever. But because I can see aspects of himself in myself, yeah. I'm like, wow, okay. And it makes it so much more you think about it, it's like it's attainable now yeah. you know it's realistic now maybe this is something i can do as well and uh, there isn't enough in that role model space because if i hadn't read his book and I've, i'm not seeing any yeah. black role models that i looked at and i thought okay yeah i want to do that I, I don't know to be honest i don't i don't know because yeah. if you don't see it it's, if you really don't see it I, I can't stress it enough it's so difficult to to to, to be inspired to know yeah. if you cannot see it it's really coming from I mean, I've worked in a lot of different industries, but being in advertising and marketing now, especially for the last, I would say two and a half years in-house, how important it is to actually be able to see yourself on screen. Like just what you've talked about, 
I think means so much more when we haven't seen it for our whole lifetimes and kind of growing up. So, you know, what I, from a, a black British perspective, I saw like the Desmonds and I saw, oh, I you know, the real McCoy and the posse and, you know, we would have figures, but the figures would be in the ones and the twos. They wouldn't be in abundance and they definitely wouldn't be how we see them now. But the way that we did see each other was from a US lens and it's completely different. It's not the same. So, I kind of, I'm, I grew up in Britain, I'm black British, I'm still working through what that actually means to me. My mum's Nigerian, so really it was like, that was at home and my dad's African-American, half Ceylonian, half American. So I had this like whole mix of, you know, this is, there's always rice at home, like there's always food at home (laughs) mentality. You are either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant, or, you know, Uh, you're going to kind of go and do some kind of practical thing. And I've always been a creative. So, you know, especially being the eldest and the eldest daughter, it was like, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean? Um, And so I literally was like, I wanted to be an actress. I got into acting school, but then the family were like, nah, she's got to have a real, you know, a real education. And then uh, you could go, it was different. It was different when I went to school. So you could go to school in the borough that your parent works. So despite us living in Walthamstow, Oh, I'm, I'm from Leytonstone. It's not the Walthamstow yeah. that you know today, just like the Leytonstone that you live in. It's yeah, not the yeah. Leytonstone. No. So it's not the I, same. <laughs> it, no one wanted to live in Walthamstow. No one wanted to come, but my mum worked at Peter Jones in Sloane Square. So I got to go to school in Kensington and Chelsea. So from that experience, it completely changed the landscape of what I had access to oh, okay. and what I could and couldn't do. My mum was the first black department manager at Peter Jones. It took her six. 16 years to get the job, but she'd been doing it. Who is your mum looking up to? Um, I, to be honest, we had this conversation and she wasn't looking up to other black role models because they didn't necessarily exist. And if they did, it was more the figures and the icons and the celebrities that existed in other industries, not her own. So she was looking up to, you know, famous designers and different people. She was aspiring to other people that worked in, you know, John Lewis partnership at the time. She started as a Saturday only girl and did every single role till she got to, you know, the one that she was in and she worked there for 35 years. She loved it. So from that same Mm. point where you did work experience at the doctors at 16 Mm. and four days old when you were legally allowed to work, (laughs) my mum said, I've cut your pocket money. You start on Saturday. Don't embarrass me. Wow. (laughs) And um, it was, I'm grateful for the experience and what I got to do. That world doesn't exist anymore. Um, and especially now we call it Nepo baby, but I think from my perspective, my mum was very much, a, it had been such a struggle for her to get to where she'd got to that unlike other people that they're, you know, they take care of their kids when they get somewhere. My mum was like, yeah, you're on your own. I don't know you. <laughs> so um, to actually progress and work, I either got the, oh my God, well, of course you're Nicola's daughter. You're just like her. And it was like, my name's Chloe. And I've worked just as hard because she, like for her, she's just trying to do her. She's not trying to help me just in case I'm 
mess up and then it brings something else. And I think mm. that was at the time, that's often, especially as black women, how we are pitted against each other, that there can only be one. Like mm. Highlander, there can only be one. So um, I was a trainee section manager by the age of 17. Um, I have always wanted to use my skills to the best of my ability. I think growing up in the world that I did, you know, I had a really great dad who said at nine, you're black, you're female, it's going to be harder for you than it is for a lot of other people. So please don't grow up with a chip on your shoulder and there's nothing that you can't do unless you try. That's been my mantra my whole life. Where I've met bricks and walls has been when somebody else has reminded me in their eyes that I don't fit the idea of who they think I should be or the stereotype that they have in their head. So you... When you were 17 or 16, yeah. going into the workplace and stuff, were you studying? I was studying. Okay. Yeah. So I uh, I started doing my GCSEs, A-levels. Um, and then I went to do music industry management and marketing at uh, BCUC, Buckinghamshire Children University. My Both my parents are actually fashion designers by trade. That's mm. the first thing they did. My dad used to run a store called uh, Carnaby Cavern on Carnaby Street. He was a designer. It was like a made-to-measure um, for so cool. artists and musicians. And honestly, when I go through the old photos and look at you know, my dad's flared suits mm. or whatever, and <laughs> he's like, yeah, I made that. I was like, okay, cool. Well, um, when I see some of my dad's old photos as well, I'm like, what was he wearing? Honestly, like, that was all the range. Oh my God, but him, honestly, there's <laughs> one of like him and his crew. It's him, my uncle, um, and then their two best mates, Gifford and Leroy, who are from Montserrat. My dad dressed them all and they would all just like roll deep. Like just in it, honestly... <laughs> Massive afro, flared blazer, flared bottoms, high tops. Like, you know, they really thought they were the ish. My, my, my dad was into his leather. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> he had the leather trousers. Nice. He had jerry curled here. Oh, my God. Leather, leather jacket on top. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like, like Michael Jackson. <laughs> they're really, like, I, I back then, our parents are doing the most. Yeah. <laughs> really doing the most. Um, yeah, and, and I kind of have always come from a creative background. So I wanted to work in music. I have an amazing cousin, her name's Stella. She now lives in the US and she wanted to be in the record industry and I wanted to be just like her. So my first work experience was actually at Tower Records in Piccadilly Circus. So you and had, I got the yeah. bug. So you had a few people to look up to then. So like your yeah. mum, your cousin, yeah. and then going to school in Sloan Square as well. Nope. Which is, oh, okay, that's not. <laughs> nope. I was thinking about it from the yeah. perspective that it's a completely different world to what Walthamstow was. It was a completely different world to Walthamstow. And because when I grew up in Walthamstow, like the Ho Ho Street, so at one end of Ho Street, you had... Bertie, the Jamaican barbers. Next to him was the South Asian news agent. Then you had uh, Ozzy, who was the Irish fishmonger. The next street, there was a Polish children's store. Like I grew up in a multicultural neighborhood where black and brown people were equal measure to the white community. Walthamstow wasn't really an issue. But when I came into Sloan Square, mm. my primary school was a bit different. I went to Holy Trinity and that was actually, I'd probably say about 55, 45, black and brown to white. So I had a nice balance. Um, but I wanted to go to Greycoats and I got into Greycoats and I got into Lady Margaret's School for Girls. 
Um, Lady Margaret's was slightly more prestigious. And my dad's dad, my granddad, Arthur, who yeah. was, you know, one of the my best friends of my whole life, uh, he basically said, you know, if you went to Lady Margaret's, I would pay for your school uniform. Um, and I remember he, they, they lived in Colchester and we were coming home on the train, me and my dad, after we'd been summoned to go. I'd been summoned <laughs> to go and explain my options and which one I wanted to go to. It's my granddad in his study. And uh, we'd come back and my dad said, OK, which one do you want to go to? And it was at that moment, I really wanted to go to Greycoats, but um, I've, I have, I've been really lucky. I've come from a really great family who've always wanted the very best for me and I've always wanted to make them proud. And I should have said, I want to go to Greycoats, but instead I just did what would make them happy and said, okay, I'll go to Lady Margaret's. My dad was like, are you sure? And I was like, mm, yeah, I'll go. Um, and I was one of six girls in a year of 66 girls. So 60 girls were white and six girls were girls of color. Mm. And that was a real culture shock to me yeah. um, because it was a completely different landscape, a completely different world. Um, it is exactly as it describes on the tin. I literally was a Sloney for seven years. Um, that was the neighborhood. Like it wasn't like Walthamstow. That was, you know, I would play netball. I would interact with girls who lived in that area. And whilst there were other girls that lived in similar places, I, I don't think anyone was as far out as me, but they were either from South or, you know, they were central girls. So I think it used to be a private school, it then became voluntary aided. And that kind of just tells you the kind of environment that I was in. And it was very academic. It was very mm. much based on what you could give and bring to the school, um, which was never really something and a world that I'd ever played in, nor that I want to play in. And so I struggled a bit to find my feet and my place. Um, I didn't see myself so much, but I'm born on the 1st of September. So I'm the eldest girl in the year. And all my friends have always been older than me my whole life. So I used to hang out with the girls that are in the older years. And now I think that ostracized me from some of the girls in my own year because it was something that I had known pretty much for the last three years of my school life. I um, am very academically smart. And so instead of doing year four, primary school I got moved up to year five did year five did year six mm. but then because I'm born on the first of September I remember the world was very different oh you're talking like 30 31 years ago <laughs> so the world was very different yeah. um so even though I was the second smartest girl in the class and actually got into secondary school the law was the school year was from the 1st of September to the 31st of August. So mm. they refused to make an exception for me um, and refused to let me go. So I repeated a year. Oh, wow. And in Learning that- Learning all the same stuff you've already learned. Oh, yeah. Wow. And that, I think, was really like one of my first hardest challenges of like, how do I- You're asking me to intentionally dumb myself down. The school, was it Mark's Lady Margaret? So my- that, so, that uh, was in Walthamstow, this one? No, so uh, because I got to go to school in, so I went to 
primary school in the King's Road, so oh, Holy okay. Trinity. And then Lady Margaret's was the other end of the King's Road, so New King's Road. I see. Yeah. Right, right. And then, so when I was talking about the representation piece, yeah. um, your cousin and your mum, and then when I said Sloan Square, the yeah. school, you said no. No, 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 no. So Sloan Square... Not so, I mean, the school, uh, you said, I think your initial reaction was like, no, in terms of representation. No, look, no, no from, sorry, so let me uh, correct that. Yeah. Representation of, from like secondary school upwards. For primary mm. school, that was like 55%, 45% yeah. in Sloan Square. So I wouldn't have said role models, but I had peers. Like okay, I, I, had, I had people that I could see myself on a regular basis and work with and you know collaborate with and build relationships with but I never really took the time I think at that point to think about what I want to do with the rest of my life I think I focused more on the relationships and my smarts took me the rest of the way yeah yeah I see so if we fast forward a little bit yeah. when I was I had a look at your LinkedIn and <laughs> The final line, which I thought was quite telling in your yeah. bio section, was that you're, through the work you're doing, you're trying to create a better world for your sons. Yeah. What does that What does that look like? What do you mean by a better world? My eldest son, Miles, is seven. He's autistic, uh, high-performing autistic and nonverbal. And my second son, Theo, is somewhere on the spectrum, definitely ADHD and is undergoing his diagnosis. And... My children are biracial, but both stole my whole face. They look mm. like me. Um, and the world is not kind to black boys. Um, it's definitely not kind to children who are neurodivergent. So for me, my brain shifted when I became a mother. And like, what's the world look like for my kids? How are they going to grow up? And is the world ready for them? And the world is not ready for them. So my job as their mom is to use all the skills that I have to try and change that. Um, because at this current moment, someone could harm my son, either of my children for no reason other than they just didn't like what they look like um, or hold them back because they're different um, and not understand that actually, when I say my sons are superheroes, I don't mean that in the like condescending. I mean that in that my kids are actually going to change the world. Like the way that they have made me shift my outlook on life and how to build relationships is honestly such a gift. And so it's that it's making sure that as they navigate through their development, their dreams, that the world is ready for them. And, and, you know, they're just two. I know so many other children who are reflections of my sons. I am a reflection of my son, like I mentioned. I was really smart at a very young age and got held back. Now, gifted children get to go to university at nine, 10, you know, they've got multiple degrees. It wasn't like that 30 years ago. Um, and so if I had had that opportunity, how much quicker would I've got to this evolution of myself? It's that part. It's really what can I help do to make that easier for them and children who will look like them. Cause you know, this next generation, they're on it. And part of me feels like I'm, I'm going through, I'm back to what I was like at that age, 
you know, I'm going through that next evolution and I just want to be able to give them as many opportunities that I can. How did motherhood shift your perspective on life? Um, it really made me a fighter. It really, it really made me understand the power of connection, especially as in the short term, I am my son's voice. I'm truly their champion. Um, and also that my very first idea of motherhood was, I guess now we would say it's, you know, it's a little Delulu, but it was very much a, you know, I'm going to be a stay at home mom and we're going to go and do all of these like mother baby groups. And then they're going to go to school. And, you know, I hope that they're going to be this kind of person. Um, and then my son Miles are diagnosed with autism at two and a half. And I had to wipe away everything that I already knew about motherhood and completely rebuild again based on what my son tells me rather than what I was telling him or what I thought was best for him. Now I let him lead me rather than the other way around. And I think that was the real kind of opening point to life. You know, how I don't know everything. So how can I be open to change? I'm really open to change and then find that shared commonality and build from there. I'm wondering as you're speaking, because looking at your background, you, for the last few years or so, you've been working as a social impact consultant, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I do want to yeah, sure. understand a bit more about because it's not really a job title. No. Nope. <laughs> but yeah. I'm trying to understand a couple of things. First of all, if that line of work has coincided with the motherhood, or if that's played a role yeah. in you getting into that. And also just looking at your childhood as well. Yeah. And... So there was that, there was a shift, of course, when you've gone to school in slow yeah. square and that kind of thing. And whether there was some kind of childhood event or shift mm -hmm. or something, if there's a particular event or something, yep. again, that planted that seed in your head that yeah. was like, okay, you know, in the future, I'm going to make sure I, I want to make the world a better place through yeah. my work as a social impact. Well, we probably didn't know what social impact was. No, I had no, I had no idea. So. Not one. Um, yeah. And actually that role was co-opted from a US lens when it was created. But um, uh, true warning, um, when I was 14, my best friend in the whole world was my cousin, Wesley. Our family used to call us Pinky and Perky. We're four years apart. Um, and when I was 14, unfortunately, he completed suicide mm -hmm. and I lost my person. And, um, when my family were, you know, we come from a big, very big family. So, you know, there's child trauma, but then when you lose a child, everyone always asks the question of why. Um, and my parents, my dad in particular said, well, maybe we should ask Chloe. And they did. And I spoke my truth. And it was a little too raw for my family to take at the time. Um, and so they collectively told me to be quiet. I remember I said, I, up until that point, had a really great family who loved me, told me I could do anything, who said, look, you know, we hear you. To essentially be silenced, um, I internalised that for the next 10 years. Can I, I don't mean to cut in while you're no, speaking about cool. this topic, um, but what's, uh, suicide is the biggest killer of young men. Yeah. Um, under the age of 50, I think, or maybe 40, yep. I can't remember exactly. And... It's, if, if you feel, 
if you feel comfortable speaking sure. about it, because I know you said that you, you spoke your truth. Yes. Yeah, sure. And I'm just wondering, uh, like you said, people ask why. Yeah. And maybe in a, in a lens that maybe would help other people yeah. listening who may be going through some stuff. Was it family related? Was it life related? Was it? I think it was a combination of a lot for him. I think, you know, our family dynamic at the time, his family dynamic wasn't a healthy one. I think now we talk about what safety really means or as safe a place as possible. Um, and I don't think psychologically he felt safe where he was. Um, we're first cousins, but actually we're more like brother and sister. And so my family dynamic was very much, you can be whoever you want to be. And we're going to give you the opportunity to spread your wings and learn that. Um, for him, he, it was more difficult. His family more was that, um, acceptance and value in life will come from money. So where I went to essentially a private school, but at that time you could go, it was part, it, it was voluntary aided. Um, he actually got taken out of state school into a private school. So he basically lost all his friends from one term to the next and then went in to be the same thing like I was, where it was, he was one of a very small number. They weren't people that looked like him. They weren't people that vibed like him. You know, he wanted to go and be back with his friends that were in Luton in that. And, and that kind of divide, I think, had an impact. But also he had an older sister who wasn't at home. So it's just him. Mm. So he could come and be himself when he came over and stayed with us. But I think the layer of the family dynamic, how often he got to do that and the ways in which he got to do that became unsafe. And so we were, I remember we were, my parents, you know, my, we're not, we haven't come from an incredible amount of money. My parents have worked very hard to be the people that they are today. Um, and we never really did like massive things until my dad changed jobs. He used to work for HMSO in Vauxhall, Her Majesty's Stationery Office as an engineer. And he left that when it got privatized and he moved to Belgium and he started working for Hewlett Packard. So I laugh and say we went from no money to new money. Um, and so that's the very first time that like we left the country and we we got to go on some really nice holidays and we were supposed to go to Disney World in October half term. He was supposed to come with us. That would be the plan. We were doing like, we're going to go to this roller coaster park and this mm. amusement park, all this kind of stuff. Um, at the last minute that changed mm. and he wasn't allowed to come with us. And we came, we left, we came back and he was gone six days later. My goodness. Did he ever tell you that he was thinking about that? No. Unfortunately, we have very similar traits. We're both very secretive about our personal stuff because we could talk to each other. And so I knew that he was struggling and I had tried in my own way to try and like tell my family that. That was this, I think this is the whole point that he was coming on this holiday with us. Um, but I'm... At the time I was 14, what can I do? Um, and the dynamic was just bigger than I, I think I really comprehended. And I don't, I don't think at the time I, I had 
any power to really do anything. I was a child and they were the adults. And I think when you put the cultural nuance on of African, you know, household, say less is normally the intention of, of what they tell you. So, um, yeah, I never, I knew it was bad and there was some really bad stuff, but I, I never thought that that would be the choice that he would make. And in hindsight, I don't know. I don't like, I don't like to wish because I think everything happens for a reason. And I really respect the choice that he made. But, you know, I shout at him in my head on a regular basis that, you know, we could have worked it out and we would have found a way. And, you know, when I see him again, I'll be telling him that in person. So, yeah. How did that affect you? My whole life changed forever. My whole life changed. You feel like that set you on the path? Absolutely. I, I stopped being me. Like at 14, my whole world crumbled and my family fell to pieces. All the adults stopped adulting. Like everybody just didn't know what to do. And I'm, remember I'd said like, I'm a, I'm a Virgo. I'm a mother. I've always been like the mother of my group. So that just, I stepped in. I was cooking, holding people. I was the one that stayed. Um, you know, we all would stay over and stuff. I stayed. I volunteered to stay, you know, in the room next to my aunt and uncle. And, you know, that's harrowing hearing them cry themselves to sleep at night. And yeah, just childhood stopped and I became an adult and I had a little brother that I needed to hold. I had family members and, um, it took a long time for my family to start to heal. And at that point I was too far gone. Remember that I tried, like I'd really tried to talk to them and being completely shut down. And so much so that I just said to myself, look, we're never going to do this again. Cause these are the people that are supposed to protect me. They haven't protected him. They're not protecting me. So let's just not say anything. And so I just bottled it all. I stopped talking about my joy. I stopped talking about my pain. I started acting out at school because I had no other outlet. And especially when you're going to the kind of school that I went to, I didn't really have a lot of people who truly saw me. They saw the idea of me or the potential of me or who they hoped that I would be, but I never, they never really saw me. Um, and so when I did try and reach out, I remember I was in a science class and it just like, there is, there is no code. There is no, you know, there is no correct journey of how this goes. Um, and I just got really upset and I started crying. It just suddenly came all over me. Um, and I had a teacher that said, we know that a bad thing has just happened, but do you think you could get yourself together? Wow. And so I was like, I have nowhere. I have nowhere that I'm safe. Um, my saving grace at that school um, was that I had a teacher. Her name was uh, Mrs. Sean Thomas. She was a religious studies teacher. She also did, strangely enough, hospitality. She was this incredible 
Welsh woman. She used to wear the most incredible YSL suits. She would <laughs> shove her feet. Like, I swear she was a size eight and she would shove her feet into a six. She'd have like cankles for days and she'd, she'd drape the most elaborate scarves oh, with wow. a brooch. She literally, like, she reminded me of, like first lady vibes from church. Yeah. She <laughs> was incredible. And that woman saved me. She would have pep talks with me. We weren't allowed to take girls. Girls weren't allowed to go off campus. And she would sign me out. We would go across the road to Tootsie's and we would have lunch. And she would just talk to me and love on me and guide me and try and give me the space that I needed. Um, and I'm not sure who I would be if I hadn't have had her. Um, and she's since passed. But a year ago, well, actually almost two years ago now, I met, I'm part of a, a group called The Compass Club, which is run by Madeline McQueen. And she does a Me For Me um, lunch. She's her Christmas Me For Me. And um, it was an incredible, you know, three, 30 to 33 black and mixed heritage women. It's a beautiful space for us to love on each other. And at the end of it, like, I'd met this uh, woman, Natalie, and we were just outside, like we were going to go to Soho House and someone, someone, I can't remember the setup, but someone went, oh, which, because we were talking, that's it, we were talking about West London. Mm. And someone went, which school did you go to? And I went, Lady Margaret School for Girls. She went, you went to LMS? And it was literally like this <laughs> oh kismet thing. And Natalie's seven years older than me. And we've had such similar experiences, so many like you said at the setup, microaggressions, things where we're not seen, things where we should be boxed. But we had the exact same experience with Mrs. Thomas. Wow. And the exact same. So literally, like, she'd saved Natalie before she saved me. And then to just find out that that's what that woman did, like, she was especially saving black girls, girls of colour in that school and trying to keep us safe. Like, it sounds like she's just an amazing human. She really was. Like, she really, she, I mean, she was a hard lady. You couldn't, you, you know, you couldn't get one over on her, but she really, if she saw you, you were blessed. Like, you were truly blessed. And so I think losing Wes, having her, understanding that, what I look like and what I sound like are two very different things. And that I am very easily underestimated. When you, when you have lost your reason for existing, as I did at the time, um, and I think a part of me will always feel like that, even though I have so much to live for and I have children and I'm so grateful, but I understand what it's really like to lose someone and to grieve. There's nowhere else to go from there other than up. There is nowhere else to go after you have lost the very person that makes you make sense. And so I think after losing Wes, even though I didn't really know what I was supposed to do, I knew that I had to do something for no one else to ever feel like I did losing him and being a family member left behind and being him and being in that situation where that you felt like that was the only choice that you had. Um, and so I jumped, I did, I did what I knew 
which was the retail thing. And mum had done that. And, you know, I live up, I look up to mum. So let's try this. Except that didn't really feel like it, it fitted. And I did the kind of like creative thing. But at that time, I was, I was trying to fit into the idea of who people wanted me to be. And I don't think I was ever really, really, truly me. And, and then when I was, pardon me, it would make people feel uncomfortable. Um, and they would try and belittle or box me. So again, I would just revert back to like, okay, let's just be quiet and do as you're told and, and be good. Um, and I try that in a lot of different spaces until, um, I was working for my G work there online community, uh, online business community for LGBTQ plus community. I started as their head of PR and partnerships. I then became their head of training and engagement and helped them grow from 85 businesses, to 252 founder led, um, the two identical gay twin brothers, Adrienne and Pierre, really lovely guys. Um, but any business that's founder led is very much like a family. And so we'd grown and they'd literally just gone through their first lot of funding and helped them raise um, 2 million. And it felt like a good time to go. I'd been there for two years. Um, I wanted to see what else I was good at, but also Miles was really struggling. And so I really wanted to focus on getting him into the right school, getting him from a mainstream school to a specialist school. And so I just really wanted to take a break. I'll be really honest. I, I, mm. I canned in my notice. I was like, the universe, whatever I'm supposed to do, the universe will send it to me. I will have faith. Although at one point I was like, I'm not sure how we're going to pay the bills, but will, mm. you know, I'll have faith. And a friend of mine runs the Diversity Standards Collective. It's called the DSC. And I'd been a consultant. And uh, he said, look, I'm working with this agency. They've got this brand new role. It's called a head of social impact. He said, it's basically you. You should apply for it. I was like, I don't, I don't want a job. I just want to like work out. He was like, no, you mm -hmm. should apply for it. I said, mm -mm, no, no, no. <laughs> it's okay. He said, look, full transparency. They've got someone else who's in process. They've been third stage, but I really think you should go for it. Just meet them. Um, and so I met the managing director first and we vibed, you know, we're both working mums and, you know, our kids are similar ages. I thought, okay, I like, I like what you're presenting. Um, they have three founders. So I met a female founder, um, and we both have PCOS. We both had a neurodivergent child. So I was two for two, like this makes sense. Um, and it felt like she really got me. Andy was the next one. Um, and, uh, it was during, it was during COVID times. So, um, all the interviews are online. You mm. never got to meet anyone in person. I'm very much a vibes, the energy that you give me. Yeah. Um, his phone. So, so, no, let me get this right. So his laptop died, couldn't find his charger. <laughs> uh, um, he's panicking. In the end, he just texts me and he says, can we just talk on the phone? <laughs> and by this point, I'm in such laughter. I'm like, sure. We had a really good conversation. Um, and he said to me, look, uh, oh my God, you know, we've all got girls. So it'd be great when you come because you've got boys. And I was like, mm, with what contract? <laughs> um, so we were three for three. I was, you know, really good feeling about this. You, 
you never know until you're offered, but this idea of actually, I really feel like I could work for these people. Um, Lucky Jeremy's is a creative agency. They have a London and New York office and they just won Virgin Atlantic and Ovo Energy. And they were really looking to change the role from social impact into something that was essentially encompassing the full ESG spectrum. So environmental, social and governmental. And so sustainability really became an important pillar, especially with an airline and an energy company. They asked me, was that something that I was familiar with, which I was. So they changed the role. Last person to meet was Danny Brooke-Taylor, who's the creative founder. And uh, that was a really interesting interview. Uh, most people that know me and ever see my kids on screen, especially at that time, um, I laugh. I just call my, my boys my bush boys. Like, they really... <laughs> They don't really like to wear clothes. Like they're just, they're just like I'm free at home. Yeah. I'm at home, free spirit. You know what I mean? I'm many a time they like their face on the camera. So especially trying to do a training session, you yeah. just see like eyes come out from the side. Um, and so I was working. I was working in the like little makeshift makeshift office at home. And uh, Danny had started with, oh, you know, who have you spoken to so far? And I said, oh, you know, I've spoken to these three people. He went, oh, so you must be special because most people don't get to chat to me. And I was like, <laughs> is that just you or is something else going on here? But I yeah. didn't I didn't know him. And uh, I just thought, OK, challenge accepted. Um, and so we have a, a back and forth. Miles came in. He just looked at the screen, wasn't really interested, walked out again. Theo came in and Danny went, oh, who's this? And I said, oh, you know, Danny, this is Theo. Theo, this is Danny. Mummy's hoping that he'll be her new boss. <laughs> um, and Theo pointed into the screen and said, yes, mummy. Mm. And especially with children who are more on the nonverbal side, I was like, okay, message understood. And him and Danny had this like moment through the screen and I thought, okay, let's do this. Let's come and work for these people. So I knew I had the role from end of June, beginning of July, 2021. This was, and you said they changed it a bit. So it's, what, what was the title then? So it's Head of Social Impact, but... Oh. My original role was to help them build uh, internal culture, so truly inclusive internal culture for London and New York, together with the founders and the two managing directors, to then look at the exact same thing across our entire external client footprint. So it might be someone will have a specific, I don't know, DNI inclusion lead, or it may be that I'm on an account from start to finish because it's very much rooted in people and how we talk about people. Um, and so in essence, that was the kind of beginning part of my role. After Virgin Atlantic and Ovo, they included sustainability, so helping the business to be more sustainable, both internally and externally, and where we could advise. Um, but I came with a whole host of things. Um, you know, I've done a lot of different things at the time, I, or still now. I've volunteered for UK Black Pride. I've volunteered for the London Queer Fashion Show. I have been an ambassador for Mental Health First Aid England now for the last three years, very much using 
my lived experience and some of the things that have happened to me to help them utilize black and brown mental health, but in particular black mental health, black LGBTQ plus mental health. And we've been working together quite a lot on suicide, which is actually something that they've really taken on board in the time that I've been with them now. So areas that it was really, really important to me. I'm also a trustee for a community center. So all of that was like the fourth part of my role of really how can we, how can she help us be this bridge between communities that we've never had access to or never been in community with? How can we make our doors more inclusive, but ultimately how can we make our work truly representative of those communities, not on their behalf, but collectively with them, which I don't think our industry has ever really done properly in in abundance in the way that like one or two agencies spaces would if they were that way minded. So um, it's a role that existed in the US and has existed in the US quite a lot. Post Mm. George Floyd, they like so many different agencies had really had to look at how they look and support black talent in a way that they'd never really done before. So it was part of a, I guess, two-part process. They had created something called Marching Forwards, which was their call to action to really look at how they talk to and look at their staff internally in the culture they're creating, and then had created my role as the kind of second part of that stage. And I think it's probably the best job that I've ever had. It sounds like in your life and work, there's been that theme of representation. Representation and purpose. And purpose, for sure. Um, It seems, um, from what I'm getting from this conversation so far, that it's been a theme. The purpose is probably something that's been developed over time. Mm. Because I can see some clear threads. Like, for example, you said you're an ambassador for the mental health. Mm -hmm. I've got the exact name, sorry, the mental health. First Aid England. That was it, First Aid England. Um, And then going through what you've gone through as a Mm. child, you can see a clear thread there. Um, the representation piece as well. Um, you can see a clear thread there. And then with the, what you do now, you founded last year, the mm-hmm. We Are... So uh, It Takes a Village. It Takes a... Why am I saying We no, Are? It and Takes I'm, a Village. Yes, It Takes a Village, yeah. uh, which is a collective for black women in advertising, media, marketing and comms. So, so different yeah. underrepresented groups. So you've got black women yeah. and the LGBTQ plus community work with the mental health side of things as well, um, which is all... Great, you know, great work you're doing. I'm wondering, like, um, with the It Takes a Village, was there a particular reason why you started it last year? (laughs) So like you and a thousand voices, this has been in my brain for about six and a half, almost seven years. Um, And it just originally started as like I wanted to do a... um, Almost almost like a Saturday Kitchen meets uh, John Bishop meets Oprah type thing over food. Because um, I've talked about all the other things, but actually I'm a chef by trade. I've been cooking since I was three. So <laughs> wow. I, I like my ability to bring people together over a food and, you know, within, especially within black culture, we always talk about breaking bread with people and actually being able to have conversations. So I I wanted to turn it into something like that. And um, that kind of really cemented itself in about 2017, supposed to launch something, didn't launch. So this has been in my head 
And as I guess I've gone throughout my career, different pieces of like what I think that that should look like. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I went, I'd been working with brands outside for so long and I went in-house into an agency. And especially as the level that I went up to, you know, even though it's a head of role, it basically sat alongside the two manager directors I helped develop the strategic direction for, you know, the business in terms of inclusion. And so when I looked for myself, I either couldn't find myself or the other black women that I met were tired, were exhausted, were code switching, were covering, were just broken and just trying to get along. And I just thought, it can't be this. Like, I know so many incredible people, but the black women that I know are absolutely the blueprint in everything that they do. Like the skill set that they come with and all of us just want the opportunity to be great and to have agency. And so when I would hit walls, I think it's that that spurred me on more than anything else that was like, okay, well, if there isn't a space for us, how do we really get to be the change unless we have that space and so that then just my brain just went like you know I know that it takes a village to raise a child that's what I've grown up with my whole life it's something that you say it and you get that connection together um and I just thought this is the place where I I know someone else who's like me but they're in comms and they're a badass and nobody knows who she is so how do I get you to be where she's at, I have to continue to be the bridge. I have to continue to use what I have to create this space where she can be seen and heard. She can absolutely and will be celebrated and championed, but ultimately we are all driving collectively to the same goal, which is for us to have agency. If you could talk to your childhood self, let's say your, te <laughs> your teenage self, yeah. what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give yourself? Oh my gosh, I'd, I, I've, I absolutely believe in therapy and I've been doing this for a long time. So therapists over the years have made me write a letter. I actually have the very first one that I wrote, I think at about 16. Um, it was on a white piece of paper with a yellow back. I think that's probably why yellow is one of my favorite colors. I would tell 14 year old me, cause I think that was the pivotal shifting moment. I would tell her that she is right and that she's great. And you have everything that you absolutely need to trust yourself and to keep going, regardless of what anyone tells you, even the people that are closest to you. Um, because someone out there, probably someone that you least expect, will see you. But the first person that has to see you is you. And I think that's the thing that I forgot the most. At 14, I like, I loved myself. So I was so in love with me and my heart broke so much that I lost myself. And I've been trying to get back to her ever since. Um, I finally feel like I've done that. And that only came about a week ago. Um, 
because I really just have learned to let go of who I thought I was and just be me and who I am right now. My children really helped me do that. Um, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy to wish and reflect on shoulda, woulda, coulda. I'm very, I'm an empath. I'm very real with this is where we are right now. But, um, yeah, my 14 year old self was a badass. She really was so on it and I could see the world in a way that was something else and it actually used to frighten me. Really used to frighten me because it felt like too much power inside for someone so small. And I think now I've just kind of grown into a, a body and a model where I can hold it and harness it and really use it to the best of my ability. And that's really what I plan to do. Through a lot of your a lot of your work, your life, yeah. the, the thread and everything that's been made <laughs> apparent. And there's a lot of areas you haven't really even touched on, which maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Part maybe, two. <laughs> maybe. Um, but you do a lot of work. You, you touched upon it. You're working mm -hmm. in the LGBTQ plus mm -hmm. community, um, black women, mental health. And I think what's been most powerful, most powerful thing I've taken away mm -hmm. just been your own personal journey. There's points in which you're talking, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I might need to grab a tissue myself. <laughs> seriously hard. I'm really trying not yeah, to. <laughs> seriously yeah. hard hitting mm -hmm. um, your own personal journey. And it's been amazing to hear. For people who are listening, mm -hmm. who are wanting to drive, and when I say, now there's even loads of things are flying mm. to head. You have a lot of accolades. <laughs> which again, I hate them. No, I don't mean it like that. But <laughs> I, just, it, I just, like, it makes, even now as I'm saying it, my cheeks are going up really high into my face. <laughs> like, it's, because it's, it's not about that. Like, it's it's mm. not about the awards. And it, it makes me uncomfortable, although I recognise that it's part and parcel of the journey that you go to and throughout your career. Um, but I don't, I don't do it for that. And so when I am acknowledged, the acknowledgement and the recognition is special. Everything I do, all I want is to be respected and valued. And so it's a moment where it's a nod to kind of, I see you and, you know, keep going. I think it's that is everything that I do. Um, I have known what it's like to not belong, especially in my own family. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do or be part of is to either create or be part of spaces where people are making space for people to belong and to feel like they're not alone and that they do exist and that they're wanted and their skills are wanted. Um, and I never actually meant to fall into this, I remember I want to be an actress, I want to be a writer, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm a creative, I want to be, you know what I mean? I want to be all of these things. Um, and so, yeah, like you never, you never know what life is gonna hit you with. But I think more than anything to anybody that's listening is in the quiet before you go to sleep at night, the reflection of who you are hits you. It's that bit before you dream where you see yourself 
or you have an idea of who you want to become, or you manifest, you pray, you speak into existence the life that you want to live, that's the most honest part of you. And so to try and hold that, because ultimately it doesn't matter what anybody else says, even though that's really hard, the person that you have to love the most is yourself. So if you can hold a mirror to you, and we are all flawed, but if you can hold a mirror to yourself and know that wherever you are, however you exist, there is more to you than people realise and more than you realise and try and push and strive for that. Everything else doesn't matter. Everything else will work itself out. The universe will send you exactly what you need. However faith you believe in, if you're not, you know, if you're agnostic, like whatever it is that you believe in, everybody has to believe in something. It's that. Get to the part where you love the mirror image of yourself and the rest will be taken care of. That's amazing. Chloe, do you have any final words for us before we wrap up? Thank you. This is, I really didn't know this was going to go here. I was really not. And to be honest, you know what? This Neither is, did I. I, I, do, I. Do you know what is really interesting is that um, I, have I have talked about this, you know, my great first loss often now, especially in the capacity of the work I do with MHFA. Um, but I've never really talked about it. I think this is the first time I've really talked about it. So um, thank you, because I think this was the right time for me to talk about it. So I really appreciate that this is what came up today. Thank you for entrusting your story to us over here. It was very powerful, very, very powerful. I'm saying probably the most heartbreaking conversation I think we've had in the podcast. So thank you so much for coming here, for being so open and for sharing everything as well. And that's that for now, people. This is 1000 Voices. We had the amazing Chloe Davis on the podcast. And for now, we're out.